Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me once again as we explore another principle of Bible prophecy and its impact on our lives in these last days. Our faith is in Christ, and it should grow and mature as we experience more and more of Christ, and as we get closer and closer to the close of probation. Many people don't realize that their maturity in Christ must continually grow. They think that once they receive Christ, they are forgiven for all their sins, and that's all they need to worry about. But cultivating a love relationship with Christ is not really part of their plan. Consequently, they become less interested in the Bible and in reforming their lives into the image of Christ. So many people are stuck in this spiritual no-man's land that I'm really concerned for them. Fitting the pieces all together in your walk with Jesus is sometimes difficult, but it must be done and it must not be neglected. Otherwise, you will miss the preparation necessary for Jesus to save you. Please share our CDs and invitation cards with others so that they too can fit the pieces together and get ready for Jesus to come. And thank you for your support for Keep the Faith Ministry. Your gifts are very important to getting the message out to thousands who hunger for spiritual light and knowledge. It is wonderful to see the results of your support on so many of our listeners. May God be with you. Today's message is going to look at some recent developments with evangelicals. Most of them do not have the light that we have in regard to prophecy, and they are really only listening to their pastors and other leaders. They cannot discern between the right path to take and the wrong path very easily because the wrong path is so attractive. No doubt you've thought about the dangers of the evangelical influence on the White House at this time in history. We have put a lot of emphasis on this rather new alliance between the president and his evangelical advisors over the last year. And it is time that we step back and see the big picture. How should we understand our neighbors, the evangelicals? Some of us have thought about how badly needed are the changes evangelicals are openly advocating concerning the social ills that plague our society. They want to change the laws and the courts that have so strongly offended Christians in recent years and made America unrecognizable to them. So today I would like to share with you some things that need to be taken into consideration when we address the issues and the foundation of end-time prophetic fulfillment of Bible prophecies. So to start with, let us bow our heads in prayer as we seek God's guidance for our study today. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your wisdom and guidance through the scriptures. We pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us as we study your word. Open to us your understanding of the things we need to comprehend about our times, so that we may have a balanced view of those who are working to correct the social ills that are so prevalent. Thank you for Christ our Lord, who is our Savior, and who is interested in everything necessary to our salvation. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who wants to impress us with the scriptures we will read. 
Now bless us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin today by opening our Bibles, if you're not driving your car, to Luke 17, 20-25. That's Luke 17, 20-25. Let us read these verses as we consider what was going on in Jesus' day. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto his disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things, and be rejected of this generation. The Pharisees had taught the people that the kingdom of the Messiah would be literal, and it would destroy the national enemies. They were looking for a temporal kingdom. They were also looking for a Messiah that would advance their nation above the other nations of the earth. But they also had more sinister motives. These that demanded of him wanted to paint Christ as a false prophet. The prophet John the Baptist had said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but their understanding of the kingdom of heaven was literal, and it hadn't happened yet. Nor were there any signs telling them that it was coming soon. So they asked Christ to set a time for the kingdom. Then, when it didn't come to pass, which they really didn't expect, they could accuse him of misleading the people. Their question was really about injuring the work of Christ and alienating the people from him. Listen to this from Desire of Ages, page 506. More than three years had passed since John the Baptist gave the message that had powerfully moved the people all through the land. John blasted the trumpet. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, verse 2. These religious leaders hungered for earthly temporal power. Jesus' message of the gospel was preached to the people, confirmed by miracles and embraced by multitudes, but it had not reached the hearts of these leaders. These Pharisees saw no indication of the establishment of the kingdom. Many of those who rejected John and at every step had opposed Jesus were insinuating that his mission had failed. When Jesus answered these assassins of both his reputation and his life, if they could, he directed his answer first to the Pharisees and then to his disciples, both of which apply to us today. The kingdom cometh not with observation or with outward show. In other words, you can't see it with your eyes, you can't feel it with your hands, you can't understand it with your mind unless you are a spiritual person, because it is a spiritual kingdom. It is not an external, literal, physical kingdom, but an internal one. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus concluded in verse 21. Earthly kingdoms advance themselves by wars, revolutions, strife, and bloodshed. These are the things that fill the newspapers and are taken notice of by nations. One current example is the way that the United States and North Korea treat each other. They do it with a lot of bombastic language, but not so with the kingdom of Christ. 
His kingdom comes silently into your heart. It comes in without pomp, without noise, or with outward show. It comes in quietly and works in the heart to change the way you think and the way you speak and the way you live. Jesus did not answer the Pharisees' direct question. He wanted to elevate their minds to think more deeply. He wanted to rectify their mistakes by explaining the nature and character of his kingdom. It's not for us to know the time when the kingdom of heaven will be established. That's a secret thing. What we do need to understand is the great intentions of this kingdom. That's what is revealed. In those days, wherever the king was, that was his court. Some will say, speaking of Christ, he is here or he is there. But don't go after these rumors. These are just manifestations of the enemy who is trying to deceive you into thinking materially, not spiritually. Christ's kingdom will not be set up in this or that particular place. Those who confine Christianity and the church to this place or that place, this political party or that political party, are saying, lo here and lo there. Prosperity, political power, or popularity have never been a mark of the true church. They may say unto you, see, here's a party that is working right, and there is a party that is working wrong. They may say, See there, we need to follow that person because he's working with the powers that be and can change our society in a way that supports our plans and agendas. Lo, there is one that will deliver the Jews from the oppressing Romans, and lo, here is one that will deliver Christians from the hands of the oppressing secular rulers. What did Jesus say about all of them? Go not after them. They will lead you to misunderstand the true meaning of my words. They will lead you down a path that will eventually cause you to reject me and make you unfit for the true kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence, John 18:36. In other words, Jesus was saying that sword fights or political fights or gun fights are not going to assist in establishing his kingdom in the hearts of men. Politics and war only stir up the sinful passions of the soul and lead to eternal destruction. Christ's kingdom has power over the lives of those it influences. It has power over their souls and their consciences. It receives their homage and not from their bodies only, as earthly kingdoms often demand, but from their hearts and their minds. When Christ's kingdom is set up, it changes you inwardly so that your outward life is modeled after the life of Christ who lives in you. He is our example, and we must do what he did or would have done. The kingdom of God does not change men's outward condition, but his kingdom comes when it renovates him inwardly. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you'll be rich, or that you'll avoid or be protected from persecution or other problems. Jesus was not a prosperity preacher. Look for the kingdom of heaven to produce a revolution of the heart, not a revolution of your personal prosperity or of the civil government. Jesus answered the kingdom of God cometh not with outward show. 
Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God begins in the heart. Look not here or there for manifestations of earthly power to mark its coming. The days will come, he said, turning to his disciples, when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. Because it is not attended by worldly pomp, you are in danger of failing to discern the glory of my mission. You do not realize how great is your present privilege in having among you, though veiled in humanity, him who is the life and the light of men. The days will come when you will look back with longing upon the opportunities you now enjoy to walk and talk with the Son of God. Because of their selfishness and earthliness, even the disciples of Jesus could not comprehend the spiritual glory which he sought to reveal unto them. It was not until after Christ's ascension to his Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the believers that the disciples fully appreciated the Savior's character and mission. After they had received the baptism of the Spirit, they began to realize that they had been in the very presence of the Lord of glory. As the sayings of Christ were brought to their remembrance, their minds were opened to comprehend the prophecies and to understand the miracles which he had wrought. The wonders of his life passed before them, and they were as men awakened from a dream. They realized that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Christ had actually come from God to a sinful world to save the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. The disciples now seemed to themselves of much less importance than before they realized this. They never wearied of rehearsing his words and works. His lessons, which they had but dimly understood, now came to them as fresh revelation. The scriptures became to them a new book. Desire of Ages 506. Don't you want that experience, my friends? Don't you want the Scripture to be a new book to you? It can happen. And as the disciples searched the prophecies that testified of Christ, they were brought into fellowship with a deity. And don't you want that? I certainly do. They recognized the fact that in Him dwelt knowledge which no human being, unaided by divine agency, could comprehend. But they had been so dim in their understanding, so feeble of mind, that they often missed the true and deepest meaning of the words spoken by the one who was wiser than Solomon. And they painfully reflected on their faithlessness in disbelieving and even denying him who was the light of the world. As priests and rulers combined against them, and they were brought before councils and thrust into prison, the followers of Christ rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 5.41 They rejoiced to prove before men and angels that they recognized the glory of Christ and chose to follow him at the loss of all things. It is as true now as in apostolic days that without the illumination of the divine spirit, humanity cannot discern the glory of Christ. The truth and the work of God are unappreciated by a world-loving and compromising Christianity, not in the ways of ease, of earthly honor, and worldly conformity are the followers of the Master found. They are far in advance in the paths of toil and humiliation and reproach. 
in the front of the battle against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 And now, as in Christ's day, they are misunderstood and reproached and oppressed by the priests and Pharisees of their time. That's Desire of Ages 508. But what did Christ mean when he said that the kingdom of God comes not with outward show? Again, reading from Desire of Ages 509. Today in the religious world, there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. By the way, this is known as dominionism. Its intentions are to establish Christ's kingdom on earth in our day. I'll read on. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. They expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion, to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God, and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, My kingdom is not of this world. He would not accept the earthly throne. That's Desire of Ages 509. We can appreciate the desires and efforts of many religious leaders, evangelical pastors and Catholic priests for that matter, to correct certain abuses that have plagued the nation, such as abortion, the restoration of religious liberty, and other matters of importance. We can often identify with these things. We want them to. We can even vote in support of issues that impinge on these matters. We should support in their efforts to turn back the tide of murder of thousands upon tens of thousands of babies. We can stand with them in restoring religious liberty from those who have determined to tear it down. But listen carefully to the next rather famous paragraph from page 509 of Desire of Ages. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human or external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. Not by the decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly great men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. We have a higher work to do, my friends, and a nobler mission. We are to teach people how to come out of Babylon not join with it by mixing church and state. Our mission is not to engage in political action to establish an earthly law. 
Our work is to bring Christ and His law into their hearts wherever there is an opening. God has called us to a very high and holy work. Listen carefully to the next part of this very important statement from Desire of Ages. Now, as in Christ's day, the work of God's kingdom lies not with those who are clamoring for recognition and support by earthly rulers and human laws, but with those who are declaring to the people in His name those spiritual truths that will work in the receivers the experience of Paul. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's Galatians 2, verse 20. Here's another statement from Acts of the Apostles, page 68. This principle we in our day are firmly to maintain. The banner of truth and religious liberty held aloft by the founders of the gospel church and by God's witnesses during the centuries that have passed since then has in this last conflict been committed to our hands. The responsibility for this great gift rests with those whom God has blessed with the knowledge of His word. We are to receive this word as supreme authority. We are to recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and teach obedience to it as a sacred duty within its legitimate sphere. But when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must obey God rather than men. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for a thus saith the church or a thus saith the state. The crown of Christ is to be lifted above the diadems of earthly potentates. Today, America and many other nations are divided by a wide gap between political parties, and it's getting wider. In fact, never before, except perhaps during the Civil War, have Americans stood at political polar opposites, and the political divide is in other Western countries as well. Many political leaders are frustrated that they can achieve almost nothing. And when one side is in power, it takes advantage of its position to get as much done as possible to support its agenda, while the other side tries to take back the power that it has lost. Then when the other side is in power, which inevitably happens, they reverse it and take the nation as far as possible in the opposite direction. Eventually, it is the dominionists that will gain the day especially since the Bible predicts that there will be religious laws enacted to stay the tide of wickedness. See Revelation 13. The enemy of souls has created this political divisiveness, not the Romans. Once upon a time, America was as Protestant as any nation could become, but those days have changed. The ecumenical movement has made huge inroads into the Protestant churches, which now avoid the term Protestant. The Catholic bishops taught the Protestants how to put aside their differences so they could work together with them. They taught them that if they wanted to accomplish some social achievement, that they should place their religious opinions and doctrines aside and join hands with the Catholic Church to politically accomplish it. This method of working is exactly the opposite of the way Christ worked. Christ did not try to overthrow the evils in society because he knew that would not save men eternally. And today it doesn't worry the Catholic Church that Protestants or former Protestants are now working together. When they were really Protestant, they would have worried because their efforts would have been against the Roman Catholic Church. 
So they put their emphasis on reducing resistance to Rome's doctrine and practices, and they've been largely successful. The Protestants are now so compromised with the ecumenical spirit that they are no longer Protestant and are very friendly with the Catholic Church and its agenda. They are also involved with the Catholic Church, politically speaking, that they will essentially do what the Catholic Church tells them to do. In the same spirit of ecumenism, the evangelicals have learned their lessons. They have learned to lay aside their denominational and doctrinal differences, which are many, and work together. It was so effective in 2016 that they could elect Donald Trump as President of the United States. And now they're working together to transform the U.S. federal judiciary into a strongly conservative bench. They are working to scale back abortion. They are working to restore religious freedom and other matters. In fact, Paula White, a megachurch pastor from Florida and a close advisor to President Trump, said, If we thought we did some things last year, boy, wait until this year, in 2018. While many of God's people have been looking for the Catholic bishops to visibly engage in political activity and promote a Sunday law, which is their underlying agenda, they have missed that it is now the Protestants that are on the front lines and are the ones running much of their religious agenda in the American administration. They have even gotten President Trump to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, a favorite evangelical goal that sets up certain false interpretations of Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, perhaps. Evangelicals know they have only so much time, so they're working with all diligence to accomplish as much as possible of their legislative agenda before the House or Senate changes hands, as it most likely will eventually. What has happened to the Catholic bishops? They were all over the George W. Bush White House. Well, they're still around, but they have backed off of the front lines and let the evangelicals take the lead and pursue their religious agenda by reshaping federal laws according to their ideals. The bishops know that eventually they will be able to use the Protestants, or evangelicals, to get a Sunday law movement going. There are two statements that I would like to read to you now. They're almost identical. But there is a very small change in one phrase that confirms this point about the bishops pulling back. The first statement is from the book The Great Controversy, page 607. Listen carefully. As the controversy extends into new fields and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, Satan is astir. The power attending the message will only madden those who oppose it. The clergy will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut away the light lest it should shine upon their flocks. By every means at their command, they will endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital questions. The Church appeals to the strong arm of civil power, and in this work, Papists and Protestants unite. That's the important phrase, Papists and Protestants unite. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. That's the end of the quote that I want to read. Now the other statement is from The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 425. The Spirit of Prophecy is a precursor to the book The Great Controversy. It was written to help God's Sabbath-keeping people understand what is coming in the future. And when it was revised under the new title, a slight change was made to make it more readable and acceptable to the general public. 
The earlier statement makes a more detailed point about the uniting of Roman Catholics and Evangelicals. Listen carefully. As the controversy extends into new fields and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, Satan is astir. The power attending the message only maddens those who oppose it. The clergy will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut away the light, lest it should shine upon their flocks. By every means at their command, they endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital questions. The church appeals to the strong arm of civil power. And in this work, now here it is, papists are solicited to come to the help of Protestants. The movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided. The law is invoked against commandment keepers, and so on. Did you get that? It gives us the interesting detail that Roman Catholics are invited to join with evangelicals to accomplish their mission to enact a Sunday law. In other words, evangelicals will think that they need help in this massive effort. And of course, they probably will. After all, they'll be fighting against heaven in this matter, and they have to overcome considerable resistance, both from Sabbath keepers as well as from secular people. But this statement, by only a few words, explains why the bishops are pulling back from the front lines and letting the evangelicals take the lead. They are still involved, make no mistake about it, but they are keeping a low profile for the time being while evangelicals consolidate their power in legislative halls of Congress, in the Oval Office, and in the churches. They need the evangelicals to work for dominionism. They need evangelicals to help strengthen the cause of Sunday observance in the United States and in other places. So they let them take the lead for the time being. And when the evangelicals get so far along that they need the help of the Catholic Church, they will be ready to lend a hand as soon as they are invited. Now listen to this statement about what is happening behind the scenes. There is much that we should understand about the hidden agenda and what we are to do about it. And did you know that we are to do something about the Sunday Law Movement? Here it is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 452. While men are sleeping, Satan is actively arranging matters so that the Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. The Sunday Movement is now making its way in darkness. The leaders are concealing the true issue, and many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whither the undercurrent is tending. So we don't know which leaders are concealing the true issue, but certainly the Catholic bishops would have the Sunday law in mind. They've had it as part of their agenda for many, many years, and they've been working on it openly, particularly in Europe, but also in other countries as well. But in America, it is hidden in the shadows. It is shrouded in darkness, all of this is making it difficult for evangelicals to understand the real purpose in cooperating with political powers. They just don't see the danger. And this is the crux of what the enemy is trying to do. He has blinded the evangelicals to the true nature of the movement to use the government to establish Christian dominionism. Evangelicals at the top of the power echelons are very passionate about this and will work with anyone who will help them to accomplish their purpose. Many see the good things that they're doing to bring America back to the religious underpinnings on which it was founded. They rejoice that finally the leftward liberal bent of American law and jurisprudence is being corrected. 
They are so thankful that religious liberty is being restored and they can have their voice heard in the marketplace. We can appreciate this too. The left has pushed so hard with their secularism, their gender identity, their same-sex marriage, and their insistence that homosexuality be endorsed and celebrated even by Christian businesses by forcing them to comply with laws designed to promote these things. To many Christian people, it is like a breath of fresh air to see at least some of these things being reversed. Now I will continue reading from this important statement from Testimonies, Volume 5. Its professions are mild and apparently Christian, but when it shall speak, it will reveal the spirit of the dragon. Did you get that? It looks very good. It is outwardly Christian in its profession, and all Christians should be able to join in and make the nation righteous again, so they say. But is this the right thing to do? That is Christian dominionism. They want to reconstruct America, not only as a Christian nation, but to make America ruled by Christians and biblical law, as defined by those who rule. You see, the enemy has constructed a set of circumstances that will make it very difficult for God's Sabbath-keeping people to oppose the movement to establish a legal kingdom of Christ on earth. This has been Rome's agenda for a long time. Now that Rome has gotten the evangelicals on side, and now that they are doing the heavy lifting, Rome stands on the sidelines and waits for an invitation to join the evangelicals to enact and enforce their dominionism through Sunday laws. What is our duty, my friends, in light of this amazing prophecy? I'll continue to read from Volume 5 of the Testimonies. It is our duty to do all in our power to avert the threatened danger. We should endeavor to disarm prejudice by placing ourselves in a proper light before the people. We should bring before them the real question at issue, thus interposing the most effectual protest against measures to restrict liberty of conscience. We should search the scriptures and be able to give the reason for our faith. Wow! We are not to mute our voices, but to set ourselves in the best light before the people. We should bring before them the real question. Wouldn't that be the question or issue that the leaders are hiding? We should once again become the advocates of true religious liberty. Yes, we can encourage and support certain things, but ultimately we are to place the hidden things openly before the people. So, let us summarize the things in this statement from Volume 5 of Testimonies for the Church. First, Satan is working so that God's true people will not have justice or mercy. That's serious, my friends, and he's doing a good job of it, especially since 9-11. He's putting all the elements in place in the name of fighting terrorism so that the ultimate target, God's Sabbath keepers, will not have justice nor mercy. Just as those terrorists who endure torture in secret prisons, indefinite detention, trial by tribunal, not by jury of peers, massive surveillance over every citizen on the planet, extrajudicial killings, and the list goes on and on. Second, the Sunday movement is making its way in darkness. Maybe it's not on the surface in the USA like it is in Europe, but it is still there according to this prophecy. Every once in a while it pops up, but it will remain quiescent until the time is right and everything is in place. Thirdly, we learn that the leaders are actually concealing the true purpose of their actions, perhaps instinctively, but deliberately. 
They do not want to be understood to be promoting Sunday laws, particularly while they are laying the foundation for them. Once there is no turning back, then they will come out in the open. Getting the various evangelical denominations working together would be a very important step to preparing for the final assault on God's people. So we can safely assume that those who are seeking the approval of secular rulers and who are uniting church and state are, in the background, working to establish a religious worship law. That's what's predicted in Revelation 13. Fourthly, we are to understand that while for the moment the movement of these Protestant leaders to reshape the U.S. government appears very Christ-like in its purposes, the matters that they are trying to shape in America every Christian should wholeheartedly support. They're good for the most part, but just as the national leaders used the war on terror to enact laws that essentially shredded the Constitution, so now the church leaders are working with government officials to consolidate their power and work to transition as smoothly as possible from the good Christian things they openly work on to the things that will remove religious freedom from God's people, and the nation will speak as a dragon. The dragon is Satan, who persecutes those who do not agree to join his ranks. Lastly, we are to do all in our power to disarm prejudice by placing ourselves in a proper light before the people. In other words, we can support many of the plans of these evangelicals to stay the tide of evil in our nation. We are to help them with Ten Commandment-level issues that we can support. And in the process, we are to help them see where the undercurrent is tending. So how are we to disarm prejudice? Well, there's an example back in the 1880s through to the second decade in the 20th century. There was a movement called the Prohibition Movement in which efforts were made to close saloons, speakeasies, and other drinking houses because of the terrible effects of alcohol on families and society. This movement was very important to social stability. Of course, today there's nothing left of that movement, as the alcohol industry is booming and alcohol, including wine and beer, as well as hard liquor, is sold in every grocery store, as well as in bars, nightclubs, and other worldly places. We are advised during this time that God's people are to join wherever possible or appropriate with those who are promoting the temperance movement, as the prohibition movement was called by its advocates. Today, the ones that are promoting temperance in all things, are mostly Seventh-day Adventists. We've learned that we are to join with the temperance movement whenever possible, speaking at their meetings when asked, and promoting issues with which we can agree. Temperance is a moral issue, and therefore to join with those who promote the temperance movement would give us opportunity to show that we stand with them on such an important issue. It would also help to disarm prejudice and open opportunities to share God's last message with its leaders. Some of the most prominent leaders among us gave speeches at temperance rallies and other meetings in support of the temperance movement, or prohibition. We were instructed to stand shoulder to shoulder with those in the temperance movement, and to unite with them wherever we can. But it is not an unlimited support that we were to give. We were cautioned from joining those who were superficial and inconsistent who call themselves reformers, but who also use tobacco, tea, and coffee, and who use harmful foods. We are not to grasp at everything that calls itself temperance, but are not to be exclusive either. 
Obviously, we're to join those who are sensible, consistent in their lifestyle in other areas of temperance as well. We are to let them know that we heartily support the temperance work. That's from letter 1, 1882. We were told not to speak against temperance by making a raid on the leaders of the movement, and that we are to give temperance talks in various denominations' churches when opportunity presents itself. We are to generally use temperance to work for the salvation of others involved in the movement and introduce them to our work. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was one such organization that was heartily supported. We were to take a decided interest in the work of this organization. We were to invite their speakers into our camp meetings and other places to make presentations to our people on the subject of temperance and to train our women how to work for temperance reform. But again, the advice to engage with the advocates of prohibition were not unrestricted. There is to be no sacrifice of principle on our part. That's from the book Temperance, page 222. When the WCTU began to exalt the false day of rest, we were advised not to go along with that, but invite them to consider the true Sabbath. You'll find that in the book Temperance, page 224. And when it comes to voting on temperance referendums, we are told, if necessary, vote on the Sabbath day for prohibition if you cannot at any other time. Today, the coordinated nationwide temperance movement is mostly non-existent, though there are a few organizations that have influence in this area. But the principle still applies. We are to engage with men and women who work for other reforms that are needed, so long as it does not compromise our faith or that we are called upon to sacrifice a principle in doing so. This whole period of history in relation to the temperance movement is important for us to understand as we consider our evangelical friends. When they push for moral improvements in society, we are to join them, encourage them, participate with them in any way that does not compromise our high and holy principles. In other words, we can encourage the evangelicals in scaling back the killing of babies, otherwise known as abortion, for this is a Ten Commandment level issue. We can even stand with them and encourage them in the restoration of religious liberty in our nation and recovering what was lost by the Affordable Care Act. And we are to join with them in their efforts against the so-called equality movement for same-sex marriage that was approved nationally by the Supreme Court. These are issues with which we can hardly agree and support. It is refreshing to have some attempts at the national level to correct these terrible abuses, that will certainly bring on the wrath of God in due time. But we have even a higher responsibility. We are to warn evangelicals and others of the danger of going too far with their agenda to make America Christian. God ordains the government and the laws of the land. The government has the responsibility to legislate concerning the last six of the Ten Commandments. We are to obey them so long as they do not violate our conscience. But when they do, we cannot go along with them and must faithfully discharge our duty before God. The government of Israel was a theocracy, that is, a government by God directly. When Israel and Judah repeatedly violated God's law and rejected His rulership, the Lord finally withdrew from them His direct government and left them to what they desired, subjection to man. Thus they came under the successive dominion of Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greek Empire, and finally Rome. 
Since then, there's been no government anywhere to which God has delegated the authority that he gave to the king of Israel in the days of the theocracy. The Bible actually teaches a separation of church and state, and therefore religious liberty for all. Let me show you where. Turn to Matthew 22, verses 17 to 22. That's Matthew 22, verses 17 to 22. When the Herodians came to Christ, they'd been sent by the Pharisees to trap Jesus with what they concealed under flattery and deception. What thinkest thou, they said, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? They were trying to place Jesus in great difficulty no matter which way he answered the question. If he said no, they would condemn him to the Romans. If he said yes, they would alienate him from the people because of their prejudice against the Romans. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Jesus, by saying this, was introducing a new principle of government that would give freedom of conscience to all citizens in nations that adopted it. He was essentially separating church and state. In doing so, he was laying down the great principle of true religious liberty. Earthly governments may not force the conscience or usurp the place reserved to God alone in the theocracy of Israel. Not until the second coming of Christ will God again establish his theocracy. Till then, men must not take to themselves authority over the human conscience that God has not entrusted to them. Now listen to this interesting statement from The Great Controversy, page 610. So long as Jesus remains man's intercessor in the sanctuary above, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is felt by rulers and people. It still controls, to some extent, the laws of the land. Were it not for these laws, the condition of the world would be much worse than it now is. While many of our rulers are active agents of Satan, God also has his agents among the leading men of the nation. The enemy moves upon his servants to propose measures that would greatly impede the work of God. But statesmen who fear the Lord are influenced by holy angels to oppose such propositions with unanswerable arguments. Thus a few men will hold in check a powerful current of evil. The opposition of the enemies of truth will be restrained that the third angel's message may do its work. When the final warning shall be given, it will arrest the attention of these leading men through whom the Lord is now working, and some of them will accept it and will stand with the people of God through the time of trouble. As you can see, we need men in government who fear the Lord. We may not know who they are, but God does. He is the one who has placed them there. And while the angels of heaven give permission to the enemy to develop his strategy to undermine the principles of truth, God has his statesmen in place where they will do the most good. The true issue that most evangelicals have no idea about, and for which many of them are unwittingly working, that is, the exaltation of Sunday, is going to come especially if God's people live fully in Christ and have victory over their sins and over the enemy's temptations. They will advocate the Bible Sabbath, and this will stir opposition among pastors of denominations that have a vested interest in keeping Sunday. 
while we are to respect the men and women who are working for the good of the nation, and while we recognize that some of them are placed there by God to hold back the restrictions the enemy would place on God's people, we must also realize that there are unseen powers working to co-opt them into doing things that would be against the law of God and against God's true Sabbath-keeping people. The next statement is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 450 and 451. The same masterful mind that plotted against the faithful in ages past is still seeking to rid the earth of those who fear God and obey His law. Satan will excite indignation against the humble minority who conscientiously refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them with voice and pen, by boasts, threats, and ridicule. They will seek to overthrow their faith. By false representations and angry appeals, they will stir up the passions of the people. Not having a thus saith the scriptures to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath, they will resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. Those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates a precept of the Decalogue. On this battlefield comes the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error, and we are not left to doubt as to the issue. Now, as in the days of Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people. Have you ever really studied the story of Esther in light of the prophecies relating to our time? It is a truly amazing story. What went on then is a prophetic prototype of what God will do for His people in the last days, right down to many of the details. The Sunday Law, for instance, is found in the story of Esther 2. Did you know that? It is in chapter 3, verse 2. Notice what it says. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. This was false worship, my friends, and it was by an executive order. Haman represents the enemy of God and his people. Notice that the decree to worship him involved everyone, including the Jews or Sabbath keepers. It was Satan who wanted the world to worship him, and he is still working to that end even today. This is a type of the end times. Listen to the following statement from the Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. By the decree, there is the executive order again, Enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation to the law of God, our nation will disconnect herself fully from righteousness. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government, and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan, and that the end is near. So we're to understand that Protestantism, or rather evangelicalism, is going to take the lead in reaching across the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, and will also grasp the hand of the Roman power. That, by the way, is speaking of the ecumenical movement, my friends. 
The ecumenical movement has essentially stripped the Reformation Protestants of their distinctive voice of protest. They now snuggle up to Rome as if she is their long-lost friend and bosom buddy. Many of them are sincere people with good intentions, but the enemy is very adept at using sincere people with good intentions to accomplish his purposes. And if they aren't loyal to the Bible and its teachings, he'll use them for sure. I'll continue reading from the fifth volume of the Testimonies. As the approach of the Roman armies was a sign to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy be a sign to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight, never to return. The people of God will then be plunged into those scenes of affliction and distress, which prophets have described as the time of Jacob's trouble. The cries of the faithful, persecuted ones, ascend to heaven. The Lord is doing His work. All heaven is astir. The judge of all the earth is soon to arise and vindicate his insulted authority. The mark of deliverance will be set upon the men who keep God's commandments, who revere his law, and who refuse the mark of the beast or of his image. God has revealed what is to take place in the last days, that his people may be prepared to stand against the tempest of opposition and wrath. Those who have been warned of the events before them are not to sit in calm expectation of the coming storm, comforting themselves that the Lord will shelter His faithful ones in the day of trouble. We are to be as men waiting for their Lord, not in idle expectancy, but in earnest work, with unwavering faith. It is no time now to allow our minds to be engrossed with things of minor importance, while men are sleeping. Satan is actively arranging matters so that the Lord's people may not have mercy or justice. There's that statement again. Oh, my friends, think about the incredible issues that are before us. We are facing the most important moments in history and certainly the most important decisions of our lives. Here is another statement that should show us that we are on the brink of massive changes to religious liberty. This one exactly points out what is happening at the moment in preparation for the final crisis. It makes it clear what will happen when Christians gain control of the government. It is from The Great Controversy, page 443. Whenever the Church has obtained secular power, she has employed it to punish dissent from her doctrines. Protestant churches that have followed in the steps of Rome by forming alliance with worldly powers have manifested a similar desire to restrict liberty of conscience. This was speaking about a time in the late 19th century when there was an attempt to establish a Sunday law. Protestants united with the government to accomplish it. Have evangelicals formed an alliance with worldly powers today? They are in this process right now. President Trump has essentially handed the churches in America through their pastors enormous power by uniting with them for political support. In turn, they get him to support their plans and agendas in government, in both domestic affairs and foreign affairs. So we can see from prophecy where this is all headed. Once this political power is consolidated, it will lead to the persecution of those who don't go along with the religious laws that some of them are working to establish. I read now from Great Controversy, page 581. God's Word has given warning of the impending danger. 
Let this be unheeded, and the Protestant world will learn what the purposes of Rome really are. Only when it's too late to escape the snare. She is silently growing to power. Her doctrines are exerting their influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up her lofty and massive structures in the secret recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. Stealthily and unsuspectedly she is strengthening her forces to further her own ends when the time shall come for her to strike. All that she desires is vantage ground, and this is already being given her. We shall soon see and shall feel what the purpose of the Roman element is. Whoever shall believe and obey the word of God will thereby incur reproach and persecution. How is Rome silently growing into power? She is working through the ecumenical movement, which she initiated. She works behind the scenes in legislative halls of Congress, Parliament, and other legislative bodies, and she is quietly urging her members to run for public office at all levels. Reading on. Protestants are losing the mark of distinction that distinguished them from the world, and they are lessening the distance between themselves and the Roman power. They have turned away their ears from hearing the truth. They have been unwilling to accept light which God shed upon their pathway, and are therefore going into darkness. Friends, let us not be confused by the surface issues. We must understand that we are up against principalities and powers who use human agencies, organizations, and people to accomplish their purposes. The enemy is working diligently to get everything organized to try and ruin God's people. But those who are faithful to Christ, those who live by His principles, those who establish the kingdom of heaven in their hearts, will give the warning message, and God will work with them to give them His Holy Spirit in latter rain power for the salvation of souls, including some of these former Protestants, among others. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you so much for giving us so much inspired counsel to guide our understanding of the unique and difficult circumstances of the times in which we live. We pray that we will have your Holy Spirit in our lives, your power in our hearts and minds, that the kingdom of heaven will shine from within and be seen on our faces. Thank you for showing us what to expect in the future through prophecy. Please help us discern the signs of the times that we may prepare for the coming crisis. We want to be your people, so take us today, mold and shape us according to your kingdom. Give us victory over the enemy, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. And if you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred and blessed your soul, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The song you've just heard is called Take Time to Be Holy, sung by Melissa Collette. The song is recorded on a CD with other lovely hymns and songs called The Way of Peace. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. And if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention The Way of Peace CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Taiwan quake kills 10 and injures more than 270. At least 10 people died as Taiwan was hit with a 6.4 magnitude earthquake just after midnight on Wednesday, the 7th of February. Rescuers combed through rubble at Hualien, a tourist city of about 100,000 people, about 120 kilometers south from Taipei, and continued their search for survivors in a dangerously tilted building. At least four mid-sized buildings in worst-hit Hualien County leaned at sharp angles, their lowest floors crushed into mangled heaps of concrete, glass, iron, and other debris. Firefighters climbed ladders hoisted against windows to reach people inside apartments. Terrified residents endured 200 aftershocks, including a 5.7 magnitude tremor. That fear is still there, said one survivor. I'm still afraid because things kept on falling down. Beside killing 10 people, the earthquake injured 272, while seven remained unaccounted for. At least three of the dead were tourists from China. Japan's foreign ministry said nine Japanese were among the injured as well. Six mainland Chinese were also injured. President Tsai Ing-wen reassured the public every effort would be made to rescue survivors. She ordered search and rescue workers not to give up on any opportunity to save people while keeping their own safety in mind. The shifting of the buildings was likely caused by soil liquefaction when the ground loses its solidity under stress, such as the shaking of an earthquake. The quake also buckled roads and disrupted electricity and water supplies to thousands of households. Japan dispatched a rescue team to help in the search effort. Taiwan is no stranger to earthquakes, and since it is located along the Ring of Fire, which runs from New Zealand to Japan and from Japan to Alaska, the U.S. West Coasts, and all the way down to Chile. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Matthew 24, verse 7. Next, Amtrak crash in South Carolina. A railroad track switch locked into the wrong position apparently caused an Amtrak passenger train to crash into a stationary freight train in South Carolina at 2.30 in the morning. 
Sunday, February 4, killing two Amtrak employees and injuring 116 people. Amtrak train 91 was traveling south and should have continued straight down the tracks, but the rail switch had been manually set to divert the train onto a sidetrack where the CSX train was parked. A padlock held the switch in place. Video from the front of the train had been recovered and sent to NTSB headquarters in Washington for inspection. Lexington County spokesman Harrison Cahill said 116 people were injured and transported to hospitals with injuries ranging from scratches to broken bones. Two Amtrak employees, train engineer Michael Kempf, 54, of Savannah, Georgia, and a conductor, Michael Sella, 36, of Orange Park, Florida, were killed. NTSB Chairman Robert Sumwalt said the crash could have been avoided if positive train control, a system that combines GPS, wireless radio, and computers to monitor trains and stop them from colliding, derailing, or speeding, had been in place. Railroad companies have until the end of 2018 and possibly two more years after that to implement PTC. Richard Anderson, Amtrak CEO and president, said the signal system along the section of track where the crash occurred was down and the tracks were being manually controlled by CSX. Sumwalt confirmed the tracks were owned and operated by CSX. Sunday's was one of several fatal incidents involving an Amtrak train in the past few weeks. In December, an Amtrak train derailed near DuPont in Washington state and hurtled off an overpass onto Interstate 5, killing three people. On February 1, an Amtrak train carrying members of Congress to a Republican retreat in West Virginia struck a truck near Charlottesville, Virginia, and in mid-January, a pastor and his wife were killed in Nash County in North Carolina when their SUV was hit by an Amtrak train. That crash occurred after the driver maneuvered the vehicle around the lowered crossing arm. Even now, Satan is at work, in accidents and calamities by sea and land, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. The Great Controversy, page 589. Next, Barbados Advocate, editor, promotes union of church and state. The editor of the Barbados Advocate has published an article that advocates the union of church and state and getting the nation back to God. I'll quote from his article. For some time now, there have been calls for God to be brought back into society, but more importantly, into the schools. It was not that long ago that principals and teachers embraced religious knowledge as one of the core subjects to be taught to their classes. Older generations generally speak fondly of a time when schools answered to their respective churches and religious knowledge was mandatory. Nowadays, most welcome the fact that our country is progressing on par with other developed countries. However, they lament that many may be losing out on the values that go hand in hand with understanding God and His teaching as, not surprisingly, precedence is given to the glitz and glamour of significant advancements in science and technology. Much of the time we hear the fault being placed on the home structures, with parents not having time to take their charges to church, or even taking time to bring up their children in a Christian atmosphere. We also hear of shortcomings of government and their lack of encouragement with regard to spiritual guidance among our citizens. Indeed, the dissemination of knowledge pertaining to God requires a multi-pronged approach as it relates to our population. 
It requires that all people of all faiths commit to pulling this country back to its strong underpinnings of religion. There are incidents which occur occasionally that remind us that while free education is still important to the development of Barbados, there is evidence that it is being squandered. It is necessary that the church be part of the healing process and be the leaders in the teachings of Christ. This is where church leaders and their congregations must get involved. There are reports from the disenchanted who have stopped attending church that speak of churchgoers who are not receptive to some types of outsiders, nor do they welcome them without prejudice. If there is prejudice originating in that place which is meant to represent the house of God, how can we then promote in our society those values which are godlike and right? Many have blamed the rise in crime and changes in the types of crime being committed on the glaring movement away from God, citing the fact that the persons engaged in such behavior do not seem to recognize or believe in a higher power. They have therefore apparently become a power or a law unto themselves. Perhaps it would be instructive for Barbados to study closely those countries which have ceased to have religious education as a part of their curriculum because of their political and social makeup. They have found it advantageous, in quotes, and necessary, in quotes, to the society to separate God and state. Is that realistic in a country the size of Barbados? Every year we focus on the need to return to religion, especially through multi-faith services where leaders of every denomination stress the need to unite with God. However, will anything be done differently this year to really promote unity? We are largely a Christian society, and while we should not infringe on the rights of other faiths to practice their religions in Barbados, the time has come for us to pay more attention to teaching values, especially in our schools. The precedent has already been set for others to be excused during assemblies and periods of religious instruction. Without the necessary values that this subject teaches, we run the risk of allowing our society to continue on a downhill moral slide. Our father of independence, the right excellent Errol Walton Barrow, asked us what mirror image we see of ourselves. We still do not seem to have come up with the answer. Historically, when state and church are united, the destination is persecution of those who do not go along with the dictates of the established church. Though he promotes tolerance of other religions, this editor does not understand that tolerance is not liberty, and that tolerance is unacceptable because it is one step from intolerance, to which it inevitably leads. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. That's The Great Controversy, page 592. Next, creating clouds to stop global warming. Weather manipulation known as geoengineering has been around for millennia and is just as controversial as ever. Now the U.S. government has recommended studies into two areas of geoengineering research. It's even talking about spraying sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere to form clouds and artificially cool the earth, as if this is something to be done in the future to keep global warming under control. This would be done in combination with a reduction in greenhouse gases, they say. It is not hard to imagine airplanes spraying chemicals all over the atmosphere. The mere talk of it by the government suggests that it may already be happening. But whenever man intervenes in nature, there are unintended consequences that create more problems. 
Suddenly stopping that spraying would have a devastating global impact on animals and plants, potentially even leading to extinction, according to the first study on the potential biological impacts of climate intervention, published by the British journal Nature Ecology and Evolution. Rapid warming after stopping geoengineering would be a huge threat to the natural environment and biodiversity, said study co-author Alan Robach of Rutgers University. If geoengineering ever stopped abruptly, it would be devastating, so you would have to be sure that it could be stopped gradually, and it is easy to think of scenarios that would prevent that. The idea behind this type of geoengineering would be to create a sulfuric acid cloud in the upper atmosphere that's similar to what volcanic eruptions produce, Robach said. The clouds formed after airplanes spray sulfur dioxide would reflect solar radiation and thereby cool the planet. Rapid warming forced animals to move, but even if they could move fast enough, they might not be able to find places with enough food to survive, the study said. Plants, of course, can't move reasonably at all. Some animals can move and some can't, Robach said. Starting geoengineering, then suddenly stopping it, isn't necessarily far-fetched. Imagine large droughts or floods around the world that could be blamed on geoengineering and demands that it stop. Can we ever risk that, Robach asked? Geoengineering takes its cue from the 1991 eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, which blasted more than 15 million tons of sulfur dioxide, 21 miles high, straight into the stratosphere. The stratosphere suspended those sulfur particles in the air worldwide, where the haze they created scattered and reflected sunlight away from the Earth and cooled global atmospheric temperatures nearly 0.7 to 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit in 1992 and 1993, before finally washing out, according to NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies estimates. But the airplanes spraying the sulfur dioxide would have to continuously fly into the upper atmosphere to maintain the cloud because it would last only about a year if spraying stopped, Robach said. The airplane spraying technology may be developed within a decade or two, he added. The people at the Tower of Babel were also into weather manipulation. They feared that another flood would come upon the earth and tried to sort out what made megastorms. Their experience prophetically illustrates what will take place in our day before the coming of the Lord. And as they would be able to ascend to the region of the clouds, they hoped to ascertain the cause of the flood. That's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 119. In other words, since they denied the existence of God, they would consequently try to understand the natural world through the eyes of secular science. Why would they want to understand the cause of the flood? Most likely, they would try to find a way to manipulate the weather to prevent another one. Today, men who do not acknowledge God try to understand and address climate in a similar way. And though technology is quite different than at the time of the tower, the underlying principle is the same. These modern Babel builders are still trying to reach unto heaven. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Genesis 11, verse 4. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus.
Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in his loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.